Is this day seven? It's, yeah. Is it? Well, is it podcast? It's actually, yes. 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 Yeah, it's day seven. Is it podcast seven? It's or podcast like six, six to eight, right? But seven days for the project. Yeah, we were having a day. Yeah. Podcast six. Everybody's seen seven. Because it's day seven, podcast six. Yeah. Five. I introduced episode four, and you introduced episode five. This is now episode six. We did two podcasts in a day, didn't we? What? Podcast for yesterday, which was day six. Today is podcast seven. was on Sorry, today is day seven. Maybe you just say the date instead of saying seven. Yeah, I'm unless it is the seven. It's like oh yeah, maybe right. I should say this. I don't know. So what. I'll just say the date. It's the seventh. I think it's the sixth. <laughs> I was like, I'm running out of patience. I have to go like right. Six episode, seventh day of the seventh month. Don't say a number. Problem solved. Yeah, <laughs> it's an episode. Welcome to Every Game in This City, a podcast about 10 game makers, curators, and researchers who met up in Malaysia for a week to try and play every escape room in Kuala Lumpur. I'm Chad Toprak. I'm Goldie Bartlett. I'm Jay Biddle. I'm Stephanie Bullock. I'm Laura E. Hall. I'm Alexandra Lee. I'm Lee Shanglun. I'm Patrick Lemieux. I'm Amani Nassim. And I'm Douglas Wilson. And this week, I'm proud to introduce our final guest, Li Ying Fu. Li Ying is a game artist and UX designer at Kaigan Games, as well as the co-organizer of Wig Out Malaysia, a hangout space for women and underrepresented folks in KL. Today, we're going to be talking about what happened when we started designing our own constraints and challenges at Code Factory, an escape room parlor in the Sunway Putra Mall. If yesterday the team hit a wall, Li Ying joined us today to help us scale it. So over the last seven days, we've been going around Kuala Lumpur playing every escape room in the city. And today joining us is a special guest. Um, welcome, Li Ying. Hi, everybody. Um, hey. 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 Uh, Li Ying is a local game developer and artist. Um, maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> Um, my name is Ling Fu. I'm a UI UX artist for a company called Kaigan Games. And we've recently uh, launched a game called Simulacra back in October. And we're working on a new game called Simulacra Pipe Dreams that's coming out soon. Hmm. So I've studied to become a game developer in KDU University College. And how that became a thing was that I studied this course, which is like A-levels for you guys. Hmm. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh a levels, I think, is like it's in English. the British one. Yeah, yeah. So what? What's that for you guys? Mean, oh, right, right. Yeah. Different things. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, a sort of high school high qualification school. Yeah, thing yeah. that you study for yeah. and take at the end of the high yeah. school session. Uh-huh. So during that, it was like a year of studying. I hated all the subjects, <laughs> but the only thing that was consistent was me drawing. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, wait, why don't I just study that? And then I really loved games all my life. So I was like, why don't I just study games and art? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that, and actually, that was like exactly how I got involved yeah, as too. well. 
Yeah. 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 I think a bunch of us are coming through like an art space, maybe, or or an art discipline to mm-hmm. kind of get to here, um, mm. or maybe theater. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell us a bit about the game that you've uh, that you've been working on, because um, I feel like it ties in really well with uh, you know escape room kind of stuff that we've been doing here. Hmm. So uh, Simulacra is a found phone horror mystery game. And those who aren't familiar with what found phone genres are, is basically this game where you pick up a random phone, but which is your phone, but we emulate an entire phone UI within the game. So when you pick up the phone, it's an entire phone interface and you get to chat with people, you get to go to galleries, and the decisions you make get you different endings. And it's kind of like this voyeuristic like detective thing. So it's like, how far would you go to return this missing phone, basically? And all sorts of stuff happens along the way. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we've been like musing about, oh, what if there was a parlor with like 30 coffins and they were all like single player Houdini style escape rooms. But like, this seems like a, maybe a better, more humane solution. <laughs> like rather than tying someone up and putting them in a coffin, like just, you know, it's on a phone and you have yeah, to yeah. use the space of the phone to find clues and unlock uh-huh. passwords and things like that. Yeah. Can I make it really quick? Uh, both those ideas exist. I can't remember the name of the project, but there is a kind of mini escape room game. Where oh, that combines the two. Where one person's in a coffin with a with phone. A phone. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're not at that level yet. It's called Playing <laughs> Troll. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the, it, the one that was at GDC this year? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. But but there I is a, um, it reminded me of it, there's a whole simulated, uh, similarly, kind of, it is a found phone game where yeah, yeah, just yeah. one person is physically in a coffin and they have a partner on it. Anyway, there are about three or four actually. I played with oh, Richard Lamarchand and I was in the box. <laughs> Did you get your own? Yeah. Great. Great. You know, That's why just I'm here. in the nick of time. Uh, um, and so tell us more about um, what are you actually doing on the phone? So there will be text messages that are coming in. Like the missing person's phone's name is Anna. So you find out through her videos and stuff. And her friends will be looking for her. And then they will give you objectives, quote unquote objectives. They're the NPCs. Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, hey, the last I know, Anna uses Jabber, which is our Twitter, a lot. So can you try to get into Jabber? And then the way you get into Jabber is maybe you have to find the passcode. And how do you find the passcode to her mail? How do you get through her mail? The hint is Toby's birthday. And you're like, who's Toby? And you go through her galleries and maybe there are some clues and hints. That's how you like basically play the entire game. Right. Sounds really escape roomy. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you yeah. view this almost as a single player escape room or something? Was like was escape rooms explicitly an influence on that at all? No, actually, when I was talking to Shang Lun about it, and he was like, "It's basically an escape room," and I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> <laughs> so, what were your what was your inspiration? Um. The person that came out with this is my colleague Jeremy, and I think for the longest time. He, He's been making like lots of like mobile clicker games and he and he does theater as well. So the thing about our game Simulacra, it's all live action. Mm-hmm. So we basically cast an entire cast of people and film everything. It's kind of like a mini movie and that's where his expertise come in. But it's all interfaced as um, a mobile phone experience, right? You launch the app and it, it looks like you're in a phone. You've mm-hmm. got little icons, you've got a little time, um, all the apps are there. Um, and so it feels like you're playing a phone. Um, but there are obviously certain um, things that you've done as the UI and UX artist that kind of set it apart from 
your actual phone so that, you know, you don't freak out when there's like a little message box that appears and stuff. Can you talk a bit about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So before Simulacra, so Simulacra is a premium game. We launched a demo called Sarah is Missing. And mm. for that one, we mimicked the entire phone interface. So when the messages came down, it looked like the messages from your phone. And it kind of freaked people out because people were like, was this the game notification or my <coughs> notification, right? right? And that's great for like shock factor. But as a designer, you really don't want to break people's immersion from games. Mm. And so for Simulacra, I took like some of these things that people were freaking out about. So basically now, instead of from top to bottom, the notifications slide from the right to left. And our icons have a little notch on the side so that there are subtle clues and hints to tell players like, hey, don't freak out. This is a game. It's okay. We even have a main menu. So before you press start, you're already in the game and then you acknowledge that you're in the game and you're put forth into a game world where your immersion isn't broken. It's interesting. It also, that also seems to relate to the kind of like onboarding conversation mm -hmm. we've had mm -hmm. in an escape room where someone takes you and before throwing you into the escape room, tell okay, here's the safety things. Here, right. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah in, in terms of like escape room UI, there is an important difference between the things that are the room and the things that are part of like the space that you need as an infrastructure to support those rooms. And so yeah. there's usually some part of onboarding that's like, please don't like put things into light sockets or like rip any wires out of walls. Like they're not going to build in a puzzle where you have to like electrocute something. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's always also this interesting moment when like if there's a computer with some sort of um, you know, simulated interface and then suddenly like a Windows update comes up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, why immersion? In Perpetual at Breakout, it was like Megasoft doors. Yeah. yeah notification that came out. That, yeah, but there were also Windows updates. Yeah. In that yeah. room? Yeah. 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 We clicked out of the game actually by accident. Really? To, like, wow. Yeah. So when we were running it, just a bigger um, game. When, when we were playing the game, uh, we were like, you know, you play as a hacker who's like hacking into the system trying to find the password. And then like this virus notification pops up going like, hey, your, your antivirus is disabled. And it's like the windows, uh, but like the, the connection was really fascinating. Yeah. Um, I guess like a question that I have as a, as a UX designer, when you're, when you're simulating these interfaces, mm -hmm. what are the, what's the kind of thinking that you're doing um, when making decisions about like whether to have it like kind of accurately emulate what a mobile phone interface looks like versus like adding small differences right. for like the purposes of like the narrative or the gameplay. Mm -hmm. So we, I did lots of iterations. So Sarah's Missing couldn't be featured on uh, the iOS store because we had elements of the Android UI, UI and the <laughs> iOS UI. So they were like, yeah, no, I'm sorry, we can't. So for that, I went the entire different route. So I was like, let's make our own iOS, right? And I tried for with the glass material for a while, but that wasn't really working out because it, it didn't feel like the phones that we would use now. And that would like throw people off. And then I did this backtracking thing where I made explicit UI for iOS that looks like an iOS phone, an explicit mm -hmm. Google Android UI. And 
that didn't work out either <laughs> because Apple was like, hey, uh, your UI mimics ours and that's oh confusing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it sounds like um, in terms of progression in mm -hmm. this game, it could actually take place in real time instead of like being like triggered by user action, right? Like so messages could come in in real time mm -hmm. rather than being like based upon the actions you're taking. Right. Did you well, ever consider doing that in the game? Oh, I, w I was kind of assuming that that's what was happening no, with no, the no. notifications. So yeah. it used to have notifications, right? But then... No, we still do, still but, do. but okay. it's not real-time. So it's Sorry. basically like, when you progress to a certain point, a mission will come out, mm -hmm. and that's when you progress further. I'm really curious how you feel like the the UI is finally working. Do you tend to like get other people to test it, or do you have certain standards or criteria that you feel like you need to meet um, for it to feel like it's right? Like, how do you judge whether or not something works? Yeah, lots of playtesting. Lots of playtests. Yeah. What's it like making this game, or games in general, in Malaysia? Um, so for this game in particular, the big problem we had was production. Mm -hmm. So the thing that we lack in Malaysia for game development is good game writers. Yeah, and it's, it's not something that we have. And when people try to transition from writing movies to writing games, it's very different because you would have your game flow. And then for this game, when you say a certain thing, you might divulge into another little section. Like if you say no, this happens. If you say yes, that happens. Whereas when you write movies, it's kind of like very straightforward. There's a linear story linear progression and even for casting because uh, right away we really wanted this to be an international game mm. so we had to cast a white actor or white actress so mm. yeah that mm. was something that we had to scout for as well mm. yeah why does it become white when it becomes international it sells better people are like oh it's a white person it's international whereas oh. if we put like an Asian person they're like oh my god it's a Malaysian made game and they mm. discount it yeah that's mm. wild. Mm -hmm. What about literature? Like Malaysian literature, like books and stuff? We do have those, okay. but it's still like the transition between like writing traditional things to game writing. Yeah. I was just going to note, you know, it's difficult to make stuff from any marginalized community and then place it in an open market uh, where those biases are just sort of a fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like with the mm -hmm. book that I'm doing, I'm putting my initials mm -hmm. as my name rather than my full name because I spoke to other novelist friends and the ones who had used their, their name as a woman, their full name, they regretted doing it because it just, oh. it just doesn't <laughs> yeah, sell yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, you're a woman and you're making games here yeah. in Kale. What is it like? What's the environment like right. for you? For women in games in Malaysia, we still have a long way to go. So uh, Amani and I were talking about how, like in Australia, if someone did something, you could call them out. You have a community and people to back you up. I feel like for now, we still don't have this kind of system. And yes, I have lots of local good friends, but I would have to build rapport and build a relationship for them to have back me up. But as a community, we don't have that yet. Um, what What do you think needs to be done or what do you think needs to be created for that to get better? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, more representation, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a conference at the end of the year in Malaysia called Level Up KL, and I personally would like to have more like equal representation of gender and races for the speakers, even you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. What? How does it happen right now? Like, uh, we had like a recent uh, game dev hangout, and there were like I don't know, like. I, yeah, I mean, I was there. Yeah, I think it was. It felt to me like maybe two hundred people, and like five or like I, I, five, I counted. What? I counted twelve, but either way, um, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe where I'm from, um, what happened in Melbourne was, uh, you know, sort of two thousand and thirteen and fourteen happened, and and a lot of the women got together mm-hmm. and created like online forums where we could just sort of visit, hang out, and ask each other for advice or raise a problem and say, Hey, am I, am I like, am I being gaslighted? Is this a problem? Yeah. Or am I, am I actually this sensitive, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and wrong. And, and by having a support network of other women who say, no, (laughs) this this is bullshit. And this is how I would handle the situation. Or like, what do you think about this? Just having like a back end channel to to discuss. Right. um, Created a lot of strength for all the women involved. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that happened that was good was that, um, especially with festivals like uh, Free Play was the first place I saw it. They really tried to hit a 50-50 yeah. um, balance of, mm. of speakers based yeah. on gender. This year we had a ratio non-binary. of um, 56% women and non-binary people. Amazing. Speakers, yeah. Now we've developed this, this organisation called Widget. Mm-hmm. It's a non-profit supporting women and women identifying people. This was the Facebook group. Yeah, which was talking about. Um, so it's, yeah, mm-hmm. w- women in women in design, games, and everything tech. <laughs> sorry, sorry, this is for context. This is explicitly Australia. Yeah. I think it is explicitly it's Australia. Pretty, right. but, um, but the people who are in there are international. Like the, the there are international women. women in there, and I think that Widget would be more than happy to open chapters or you know have have. Uh, international versions. There's also, There's also a lot of mentor- mentoring happening. Yeah. Okay, yeah. There are other heaps of other um, women's groups as well in yeah. in-game space. Just in Australia, Widget is the one. Uh, do the women do meetups just as a group? Right, I was going to just bring that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a uh, Women in Games Malaysia slash Singapore Facebook group, and that's been great. We had like a meetup last year at the end of Level Up KL, and a good number of people showed up, and cool. mm-hmm. they were very enthusiastic about mm-hmm. it, and I was really happy. But basically, a person who proposed this group, Mei-Ling Tan, she lives in the US. So mm-hmm. meetups like this are rare, because it depends on her coming back to Malaysia, and depends on her availability, and even our friends from Singapore, even though it's so close by, mm-hmm. they would still need to come and then like set up a meetup, so now you're gonna do it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, I'm I'm planning this like uh, women in games hangout thing, but for now I'm focusing on uh, students who are cool. studying games, because I feel like even with me approaching some of the female students, they shy away from me, and I feel like there's like some kind of power dynamic thing where they feel like I'm a professional right. and I'm not their peer, therefore they don't feel like they could open up to me. So I feel mm-hmm. like a hangout with them, with me, could bridge that gap. For sure. Yeah. And that's yeah. why you know, the, the online forum really helps as well. Because right. it sort of breaks down those barriers mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something really interesting at that meetup. Um, 
which I hadn't really considered, uh, but was really interesting. I've been thinking about it since. You said, you know, women in Malaysia, like, are often culturally raised to be softly spoken. Yes. And quiet. And, you know, my my I didn't say it because I knew it was wrong, but my head went, oh, I'll just speak up a bit more. And then I thought, no, 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 it's a, it's a cultural thing. Like, yeah. Um, and that was really interesting. And the problem that you highlighted was that the, the men don't really, like, know how, or don't seem to grasp that that's a thing and mm-hmm. that they can um, they can uh, shift their behaviour to accommodate. And because there's so much accommodation that we do already. Yeah, basically, um, yeah. That it's sort of about equality there. And, and I can understand that, like, there is, like, this backlash against, you know, I don't want to change my behaviour for whatever reason, but mm. that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I've heard cases where in a project when uh, a fellow female student like stands up for herself or speaks up, they're labeled as difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of yeah. yeah. So when we when we do stand up, we're labeled as difficult, but when we don't, they're like, ah, you don't really matter. You're a pushover. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're a pushover. I can push you over. Yeah. Mm. Catch twenty two. Mm-hmm. Be difficult. Be, <laughs> be difficult all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and see what happens. Mm-hmm. No, but, but also, it's on men to change their behavior. Definitely, yeah, absolutely. And and we're watching it. You know, it's being like it's not going unnoticed anymore. Mm. I I recently uh, listened to this talk. Uh, the speaker Alex Chin uh, at DockerCon. So she's a software engineer. It but it applies to tech and women in tech. So for the longest time, she didn't fit in, and she said that she was like hyper visible but also invisible at the same time mm-hmm. and she did so many things to uh fit in so she became a badass programmer by like going up to talks and doing things and still people still like flirted with her or like mm-hmm. insinuated things and she did this thing where she shaved her head off hair mm-hmm. off and that was when she was a good programmer because she was no longer feminine. Mm-hmm. And that's such bullshit. And she was saying, like, she had to constantly change herself to fit into mm. the tech community. And now it's time for the tech community to, like, change, change for the better for mm-hmm. all of us. Yeah. So you also mentioned that you uh, went to GDC for the first time. Yeah. Was that this year's GDC. Yeah, yeah, it's this yeah. Year's I'm, I'm really curious to hear what that was like as both um, a woman, but also um, a Malaysian. Right. So for this year, uh, me and three other colleagues were fortunate enough to go to GDC because our uh, government uh, body, MDEC, sponsored our tickets, and we had to fork out the accommodation flight to go over to GDC. Uh, it was really intimidating, and imposter syndrome was so real there, so mm. real. Because it was like, I'm a little small-time Malaysian game developer, and these people are so awesome, and I don't belong in the same room as these people. Can I add for context, just in case the listener has a GDC, the Game GDC. Developers Conference, right, right, is yeah. like the uh, big visible industry conference, yeah. tens of thousands of attendees, very it's international. Huge. Yeah. It's huge. It was my first year this year as well, and yeah. it was overwhelming. Yeah. And uh, I also want to like talk about uh, uh, Chad and I's mutual friend, Gwen, from the Philippines. She was actually invited to talk for uh, Rami Ismail's uh, mm-hmm. hashtag One Reason to Be 
panel for uh, underrepresented uh, countries to attend GDC and talk about their reasons to be a game developer. Mm. And her visa was rejected mm. three times. Mm. Did she manage to go in the end? No. Damn, she most was one of the, of most of the panel got turned back. Yeah. Yeah, so many. It's like half of it. Yeah. yeah. And she had like a letter of guarantee too. Like, hey, I'm like attending a conference. I'm a speaker, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And she still got turned down. And this is just like one of those things that in history books we'll look back on and say, why didn't we? Totally. Yeah. It's um, one of the reasons why I ended up like putting together the Southeast Asia panel for free play this year. Mm-hmm. And we we had Gwen on it and mm. it was fantastic. Just like yeah. being able to hear those um, perspectives is super enlightening. And I feel like more people need to pay attention to um, not only Southeast Asia, but also other unrepresented yeah, regions in definitely. the world. Yeah. I think what Goldie said was really important for the women games thing, mm-hmm. that people are watching, like people all around the world mm. are watching yeah. what is happening in Malaysian game dev community and how yeah. the women are treated there. Yeah, mm. and I don't think a lot of them are aware of this, right? Mm. They're like, I'm in this small little bubble and yeah, I'm in this space. Yeah. We can behave however we want. Yeah, yeah. No, no, you can't. No way. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I think this is something that like um, Chad's been working on, but uh, also like curating some of these folks or inviting these folks or thinking about um, these games when you're putting together shows or exhibitions, it's, it's worth doing. Yeah. Um, now is the moment. Um, yeah. Well, the only thing I was going to add uh, just briefly is so last night, uh, along with uh, Liang, but uh, we got to meet a whole bunch of, I think over 10 Malaysian game developers yeah, yeah. who came to join us for dinner, uh, which was and Durian. Uh, <laughs> so much durian. Um, and I think uh, it, you know it's one of those things that as someone who's been uh, privileged enough to travel to all these different countries um, you know talking to the Malaysian developers about their games it, there were lots of amazing games and really interesting work being done here and mm-hmm. I think it's that uh, we often miss those projects happening in those regions so I think I think all of us in the room came away being like, oh man, more people should know about some of these Absolutely. games. Yeah. Yeah. That's something, uh, like organizing that dinner is something that has made Melbourne like what I think you enjoy about it. Like the community aspect is just as, uh, I've known Shanglin and Chad and Amani for years because for years we've just been saying, hey, let's just go and get dinner at some restaurant and then go and have Durians. I mean, the Melbourne version of Durians doesn't really exist. Just HSP. Flat whites. HSP, flat whites. <laughs> yeah. Let's go and have a cup of coffee and keep Love talking. And, yeah, just hanging out with people who are who are doing the same sort of stuff as you is, is key. But, uh, but Yes, but I'm saying here then it's also then the, like, travelling, um, yeah. uh, the travelling between right. those communities. And so, yeah, very, especially grateful for, you know, Chad mm. setting up for example, at this Australian conference free play, this panel mm. of uh, Southeast Asian developers. Mm, yeah. And so, yeah, I think those cross linkages and, you know, maybe that's, I would say that's one of the goals of the trip like this as mm-hmm. well. I feel, yeah. yeah, I'm really lucky to be here too. I'm really happy to have you guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, on that note, I would like to do a shout out for some Malaysian made games. Yeah. 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 Yes. And some of these are out yet and some of these aren't. So, but I'm just going to list them out. So, um, History Inc. by Night Morning, it's an idle mobile game where you get to choose historians as your characters, and they include female historians as Yay. well, so props yeah. to them. Um, no Straight Roads by Metronomic, it's a third-person action-based game. 
on rhythm and music. Uh, Warports by Weirdworks. It's a turn-based block breaker RPG and it's beautifully done and beautifully made. The Long Road Ahead by Cellar Vault Games. It's a horror game that's done in a short story form with local Asian elements as their main theme. The art style on that is really yeah, nice. It's incredible, this yeah. Is Benny's game. Yeah, this is Benny's game. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. We were looking at that last night. Yeah, and, and Re-Legend by Magnus Games. It's a multiplayer JRPG adventure farming game and it's one of SEA's <laughs> biggest Kickstarter projects. <laughs> what do you describe what what I mean? <laughs> well, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Sold. <laughs> um, rhythm Doctor by Seven Beat Games. It's yeah. a one button rhythm game where you only press the button on the seventh beat. Oh, yeah. And yes. you think that's easy, but it's freaking hard. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many good things about that idea in terms yeah. of accessibility yeah. and in terms of yeah, yeah, yeah. thinking one about switch, music in yeah. a different way. Yeah. It's really um, good. Like when he ports to the Switch or like even mm -hmm. the PS4, it's it's so seamless because <laughs> it's literally one button. Yeah. Uh, another one is Xmas by Amobox. It's an RTS game that's also done in FPS. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Politico by Centaur Games. It's a local political card game, but now it's in a mobile format, so it's more accessible to everyone. So I, I played the card game, and it's cutting. Like, it really does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really does, doesn't it? Mm, mm. It's fascinating. And I mean, especially now with the political spill and change. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. yes. I feel like... Um, it makes way more sense, though, to local people because That's true. of how it rifts off certain political parties and, mm. and tensions. Politico, was it called? Politico. Politico, with a K, with a K yeah. Uh, and lastly, I want to do a shout-out to my university, KDU University, where I graduated from, with their continual hard work on educating, inspiring game developers to becoming great game developers and contributing so much to their community. Nice one, and, yeah. Obviously, from my game, Simulacra by Kaigan Games. <laughs> and, our upcoming, <laughs> and our upcoming game called Simulacra Pipe Dream. So Great. And what out. we'll do is um, I'll get in touch with you and we'll get all the links to these. Yes. So all you yes. have to do is check the text next to this podcast to uh, check out any of these games. Mm -hmm. That'd be great. On the website, every game in this dot city. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's really hot in here right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. let's take a break. Right back. It's during time. <laughs> <laughs> When we get back from the break, the team will talk about Sunway Putro, a mall on the northwest side of the city, and how we tried to scale the wall by adding constraints to Operation 174 Red Alert, Classroom Murder, and the Forgotten Underpass. So yesterday we were at Sunway Putra Mall mm -hmm. yeah. and uh, we played three different escape rooms at Code Factory. That's right. Yeah. At, at this point during our trip, uh, we we had hit the wall, we were <laughs> extremely exhausted, delirious almost, but for the first time uh, we decided to, to put like some voluntary constraints in in some of our games um mm -hmm. i hope we get to talk a bit about that um but it was uh 
Li Ying's first ever uh, yes, escape room experience. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah, can you talk a bit about that? What was it like for uh, for you? So I didn't know what to expect at all. So I've heard a few of my friends say there were puzzles and you got like different rooms. There are themes, and I was like, okay. And then the first game that we did, I was blindfolded and I was handcuffed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I took a photo of that as they led you away down a corridor. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> I was like, what's happening? It was so scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, our first game was, uh, I forget what it was called, uh, Operation... 174. 174. Mm -hmm. um, so it was Soviet-branded, American-branded... Yeah, we were Soviet. We were Russian. We were trying Catch to get away. It's a prison yeah. break. Story. Yeah. yeah, a spy prison break. Story. Yes. So we were four players. Two of us were captured and mm -hmm. and put into this jail. They were blindfolded as they came in, and they were also handcuffed to one another. We yeah. were Russian. Yeah, yeah. we were yeah. Russian. We were what? Yeah. Americans. The Americans were going to invade Russia, and so we <laughs> That's were. That's not what we were told. Couldn't you tell we by were... the menacing propaganda? I could tell where we were, but I didn't realize we were Russian. We were yes. Russians. Yeah. Yeah. How did you not tell that? I think we got yeah. a second story. I feel that, um, who was out there with them? Chad, yeah. Yes. I thought that we were Americans rescuing Americans who had been caught by Russians. No, oh, we, we were, were Russians. Russians. <laughs> oh. Saving Russians. The to-do list said, like, invade Russia. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. number three on the to-do list. To-do list. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, destroy Russian civilization. Right. That's because yeah. we were in the American camp. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There was we a strict had... time limit, and so we were all Russian. Oh, uh, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll edit the door. Clank. <laughs> um, yeah, so like, uh, you know, you were trapped yeah. uh, with... Alex. With Alex yeah. in the room, and we were trying to figure out how to get you out. Um, how do we eventually do that? Sympathy hints. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think at least at this point in the trip, now when we're encountering stuff that is like not solvable easily or in a sort of straightforward way, we're like, just call, just call for the yeah, get yeah. it. Yeah. And we've done that in all of them so far. I think yeah. it's yeah. mostly at this Same. point that we we get to an answer and we, we're like, this is the answer. Yes. But we can't enter it into whatever yeah, format yeah, yeah, they yeah. have come up with that will actually unlock a padlog. Yeah. So then we're like, we're not going to spend 10 minutes wasting, yeah. just like slowly doing this. We did that we're twice. Yeah. Malaysia in particular yes. has um, the date format as month slash day slash year sometimes and day slash month slash year at other times. <laughs> yes. And it's so weird because it's day, month, year. Um, for a while, there was even a newspaper that was month, day, year. In Malaysia, yeah. yeah. Uh, can I say that we, I don't think we entered the day saying, yep, we're going to add all these uh, wacky constraints. No. I think it came mm -hmm. a little bit more naturally yeah. Yeah, uh, out of the first game. Uh, and I, I thought the day before I had recovered uh, from hitting the wall. <laughs> and nope. Uh, so I, I, was a, mess. I was in a room with Patrick. Uh, with um, Stephanie taking notes, and I was just uh, incompetent. Like, I was given codes <laughs> that I couldn't correctly put into the... Doug, Doug, Doug no was way sabotaging me. Yeah. You were alternating between Long Arms Wilson, <laughs> when you were useful to the group, right. and Butterfingers Wilson. <laughs> right. You're, like, entering the code, we have the right number, but you're just... You can't didn't, do it. You can't do it. But, but that turned out to be really, really right. interesting, because... Your ineptitude actually aligned with 
the character that yeah. you've been given, who just by random chance actually happened to be the murderer in uh, in the in the escape room that we were playing, which is what actually inspired us to explicitly start designing and thinking about traitor mechanics. Before we get ahead of ourselves, Stephanie, Patrick, Doug, and Goldie are going to break down Classroom Murder, the high school mystery room that inspired us to start designing our own quirky constraints, trader mechanics, and teen drama. Hi everybody, welcome to the interview. I'm Stephanie Bullock, and I'm here with Douglas Wilson, Patrick Lemieux, Goldie Butler, and we're going to be talking about Classroom Murder, which is one of the escape rooms that we played at the Sunway Putra shopping mall in... At Code Factory. Yeah, yeah. at the Code Factory. So um, maybe just to start us off really quickly, I think it's worth mentioning that Doug, Patrick, and I were all teachers, and so we were particularly excited yeah. about this um, about this escape room because you know. <laughs> I don't know um, if excitement is the right word. Interested. I was like morbidly curious, morbidly like, fascinated. Was this going to be tasteless and be like uh, like a horror show from like a U.S. perspective, or was right. it going to be like? Um, like a, a detective thing where your friend is missing, which is something that we were wanting. We just didn't know. Yeah, Classroom. yeah. And actually, you had been sort of um, wildly speculating, like, at what point are we going to get an escape room where there's a chalk outline on the ground um, and it becomes this kind of detective procedural mystery? And so when we walked into Classroom Murder, we were really um, kind of, Excited because that's exactly what we saw. Oh, yes! 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 We are playing a student at this time. We are students. Yes. Um, this one is Poppy. Robin, Tina, and Bradley. Oh. Each of you I'll be the third. I'm Robin. Okay. I'll be Bradley. I'm Tina. Yeah, I think this was uh, the most straight up fun that we had <laughs> uh, so far on, on the trip. Uh, yeah, like, we were like kids in a candy store. And we, we were literally in. playing kids, right? Because at the start of this escape room, they hand out a bunch of ID cards, and right. we picked roles. And so I decided to be the... The, the strapping student Bradley, Patrick was Robin, and... The shy new kid. And Doug. I was Tina. It's worth pointing out at this point, we, we don't know much about these students we're playing at. All we know is the, the background story. We're high school students, our friend, we don't even... We're not even as players told her name yet. Our friend has been murdered. The police have not been able to crack the case, so we break into the high school late at night to try to figure it out ourselves. But then also weirdly we're given this kind of threat that like that the actual murder is onto you and might murder you too if you don't solve the case fast enough. Right. Yeah, so we walk in and it looks like a tiny classroom. And there's a there's police tape around the desks with the outline of the body. There's like a teacher's desk, a bookshelf, a whiteboard, like a corkboard, and Persona 3 music is playing. <laughs> So it's like setting the stage for a genre that we hadn't encountered in the trip before, 
Because you have to imagine, at this point, we've been hit with spy themes. You're kidnapped in a military, you know, in a military complex. Egyptian pyramids. Egyptian pyramids for days. Uh, Broken down spaceship. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and a bunch of others. uh, Other types of genre, horror, fantasy, but not the mundane... Uh, you know, 2018 classroom. Of what is literally, I think, a computer science classroom, specifically <laughs> because there's SQL database books. What? They just found. Look, it's like bloodstained, Doug. A SQL program. Bloodstained SQL, blood blood. SQL <laughs> database entry book. Finally! Yes! But wait, there's two volumes of SQL. There's a framed photograph of Steve Jobs <laughs> yeah. done in the style of the Obama... Yeah, the Shepard Fairey <laughs> uh, yeah. Obama poster. <laughs> Which is really, really weird. Um, so so that mundanity, that ordinary everydayness of, of the escape room actually made it far more kind of engaging and far more of a mystery that we wanted to solve. Well, so, I feel like I should point out just really quickly that in a lot of um, Asian horror films, school is a common setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is maybe perhaps a genre thing, just not one that is... But it wasn't a horror... It didn't feel like horror to me. No, it felt more like Persona. Yeah, where you're a group yeah. of friends, maybe like a club or something, and you're yeah. doing something outside of the norms. You're there after dark. But so we're already deeply excited about yeah, this really <laughs> and it the gets point. better. So it gets better. Um, so there's yeah. whatever a few puzzles that Patrick will talk about in a second. But at some point, you uh, unlock the backpack of the murdered student. The pink, the pink backpack. backpack. Turns out her name is Amy, and we know this because in the backpack is her journal. Doug, come here, please. Oh my gosh, Doug just injured here. himself. Her in backpack. In all- oh yeah, it did work. Fuck yes. This yes. is what so we, we might have- know. It's a small notebook that was once the notebook of our now deceased student. Oh man. Dude, read that up. If you're reading this now, you might want to close this book, put it where you found it, and walk away to top secret. Amy. It's Amy, not Amy. Amy. Oh my god. This new kid in class today, he's gorgeous. Tina and I, that's me! I was really gushing over him. I managed to talk to Robin. This is sick. Ooh, so like me and you are competing. Besides, you said you were in. I love this. This is getting off with me. So good. Besides, Tina said you were in the Bradley. Love, love Square. Her diary. And so there's this like handwritten uh, fake journal entries, and there's quite a lot of them, uh, clearly carefully prepared by the escape room uh, creators. In a beautiful, small, bejeweled little, tiny little yep. diary. And. Uh, even better, this book is telling this kind of whole story of this intermeshed group of high school students. Uh, there's some kind of romance and jealousy. And we imme- immediately have buy-in because we're wearing those name tags, right? Like, where's the page with Robin on it? Where's the page with Bradley? Like, there's an immediate reason to read because... Did it dawn on any of us that a student could be the murderer at that point? Well, so, yeah. So, the... the we're, we're running out of time, so this is funny. We have this uh, kind of conflict between we're supposed to be solving the puzzles, <laughs> but in reality, we just want to be reading the journal. So I'm the note taker, and at this point, Doug and Patrick are gathered around the journal, and they're squealing like high school students, mm-hmm. reading through it. We hang out as a group today. We went to an amusement park. What if one of us turned out to be the killer? That would be incredible. I would be so good. Oh, my God. Me, Tina. Robin Bradley, Christine, Suzanne, Kelvin, Patrick, and Ivana. But say hello. Hi. You guys have 15 minutes. 
second. Uh, oh, yeah, we're just having fun. Right, yeah. we're, we're good. Yeah. Are we really lagging? Uh, you should be on the second. Okay, yeah. we're, we're just okay. getting yeah. this out and this is the point at which we're like 20 minutes in, utterly failing to solve any of the puzzles that the attendant actually walks in to sort of... Um, Remind us what we're <laughs> supposed to be doing, I guess? Yeah. He was like, you probably should be in the next room at this point. And we're like, no, man, let us read the journal. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, th- I thought that was an interesting moment. We were totally. totally agnostic to all of the puzzles at this point and just... Though, like, right. Yeah, though the next... When we did start to work on the puzzles... I thought that they worked really well because multiple puzzles hinged on Amy's subject position. And this was one of the few times where the puzzles and the narrative kind of meshed really well. So laying down in the exact position that Amy died in revealed a clue. So on the top of the desk, yeah. uh, the body's looking up. Uh, presumably, Amy wrote some code in blood on the top of this desk. Or finding a photograph that Amy took from her desk, yeah. and then sitting in that desk revealed a clue. Mm-hmm. So, like, this is something I love, is when um, it's not just about reading text, but it's about embodying the story. Yeah. Thinking about spatially and narratively and architecturally how somebody might live their life or, or move around this as mundane as it is a classroom. But finding their desk is super personal <laughs> and finding their journal is super private. Well, not only that, but um, like pretty much all the escape rooms we've played in KL so far, it was fully linear. And so uh, in other rooms, uh, for example, the breakout rooms, they've labeled the puzzles this explicitly. Hey, here's puzzle one, mm-hmm. here's puzzle two. Uh, and usually that's done non-diegetically. But in this case, in that classroom, that first room, they could do it diegetically because we had the right. police labeled yeah. evidence, yeah. Uh, evidence number one, evidence number two, which was actually the secret that was puzzle number one, mm-hmm. puzzle number two. So there was uh, a tighter blending of... Oh, I f- yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you tell we could just like go on and on about this first room? <laughs> <laughs> so despite the blending of puzzle and narrative, Doug and Patrick still were abjectly failed, basically, to solve any of the puzzles. But through the helpful attendants who at this point were just coming in and giving us answers yeah. whenever we wanted, we eventually got into the next room, which was the laboratory. And we are going to rob it. The red room. It's a laboratory. There is some chemistry formula on the floor. There's a periodic table of elements. There's a thermometer. There's lab coats. Lab coats for days. And there are some fun facts. I thought I scaled the wall. Every day I just ran face first into the wall. And I think um, in that room, the puzzles, you, you seem to have a better better time at it. And we kind of we kind of I think got we did the next two room rooms pretty, in five yeah, minutes each. A, a lot, a, it was, it, we, we sort of started to accelerate our pace until we ended up in um, the last room, which was the, the rec room or the locker room mm-hmm. that had, um, you know, it had the lockers of all the students and specifically Amy, the victim, and Tina, her friend. Uh, what I remember about that was that those two lockers were bedazzled. Whereas, yeah. like, all the uh, the boys' lockers and the other characters were just plain. So they were kind of sticking out to us through this, like, loving, uh, lovingly yep. done bedazzling. Yeah. And the puzzles in this room, of course, get you the locks to their lockers. And you find out more things about the characters. You know, Patrick listens to his Walkman in class, um, etc. But then um, you finally find 
stuck to the ceiling of Tina's locker, the bloody knife. <laughs> and so, uh, throughout this whole thing, Doug was, uh, like missing numbers on the combos and, uh, kind of like struggling with keys. At different <laughs> not, I think we were really tired. Not actually. actually. Not we're, just, we're just super yeah. tired and not playing escape rooms so, very well. So, I'm still for that. Uh, two eight six four. Uh, we tried that. Right, it? like this, right? Two eight six four. Yes. Doug. Doug. Um, this Doug. is number two with you. Explain to how to get. No, we got no, it. No, we know it. Yeah. Uh, one of us is bad at. One of us is can't punch in numbers. We got this exact thing. So Butterfingers Wilson. <laughs> I yes. I thought I was over the wall. I was absolutely not over the wall. I am the wall. <laughs> oh, I opened Patrick's locker. Holy fuck! An MP3 player! Doug, I'm gonna split these between us. Butterfingers Wilson can't open any of the lockers. Aside Butterfingers Wilson I think it's a con- his ugly head at this point. Yeah, I think it's a confluence of things. Like, we're excited about the theme. We're kind of over escape rooms at this point. Yep. Um, but we're also, like, totally tired. So, shaking hands, uh, etc. <laughs> And we were laughing on the way out with the bloody knife that, you know, Doug was playing Tina. So if through Tina his, was actually... His total ineptitude. Who turned out to be the murderer. Right. Yeah. And if you were Tina, maybe one way of slowing down the pace of your friends would be bungling codes and not, you know, you're shaking hands because you don't want to get arrested. I wonder whether there would have been enough of a satisfaction if the characters that you were playing were only, like, decided or knew that they were only supposed to open their lockers. Hmm. That's a really interesting idea. But, but this gets to the next thing, which is, as yeah. we exited the room, we were thinking about, uh, especially since we had kind of hit the walls the previous day, how do you, like, climb over the wall or parkour the wall or whatever? <laughs> well, uh, well, I think it's about, like, all of us were feeling creative. We had been yeah. talking so long about escape rooms and, and escape room ideas, and I think we just felt so hungry to kind of twist it and, and add our own mechanics and constraints. Yeah. And, a, and a couple of podcasts ago, we'd actually been talking about trader mechanics right. and the possibility of introducing trader mechanics into escape rooms and what would that do. And so the three of us basically decided to... I guess metagame this escape room or like yeah. add an extra layer by giving not just roles to each of the players. We, we had another team that was going to be going in after us yep. that was playing the same room again. So we decided to not just like assign them characters or roles, but to add mechanics to their characters and to add a trader mechanic. So basically the person who was Tina would become, would want to fail. Would want to fail, right? Yeah, and so it, at this um, particular outing to Code Factory, we tried out a lot of different constraints. So uh, a team of us did a room completely silent. A team of us did a room uh, with no touching, but a blindfold on the one person who could touch. Uh, and so we were kind of thinking, what would be the different mechanisms that would differentiate these different characters? So Robin, the new kid who's shy, maybe doesn't talk as much. So Robin has a constraint, no talking. Patrick, the the bully, the aloof bully, (laughs) maybe um, wouldn't be able to touch anything. So Patrick always has to have his hands in his pockets. Tina, uh, who is, you know, kind of the mastermind, could say like in every sentence to kind of uh, hide the fact that she knows it all, right? Well, so the the idea was to... to to not even let the players know that there was going to be a trader mechanic. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we said, hey, one of you might be a trader, figure it out. Right. We just told them, uh, hey, you each have a communication constraint. Yeah. Because that's what we had been doing in previous rooms. And uh, additionally, Tina's 
letter, which I'll have Patrick talk about in a second, and s- instructed that player, also you're trying to make the team lose in 15 minutes. But th- there was um, plausible deniability uh, for the Tina character. Oh, actually, the, the thing in my letter was this communication constraint. I have to say the word like uh, in every <laughs> sentence, like as if I were a valley girl or something. So the way that these roles got distributed, and Goldie was on the team that, that got the roles distributed to, was we put the name tags upside down. Well, first of all, we like talked to the staff and were like, <laughs> what name tags do you have? Like, could we borrow them for a second? Uh, and they were actually super excited and supportive. And, and actually, um, it's worth saying that at this time when we were kind of colluding and coming up with these constraints, <laughs> the the designer of Schoolroom Murder came to work. Um, right. So this is a woman who's named uh, Minami Shinto, and I think that her hand is most felt in the first room, and I'm pretty yeah. sure she wrote the diary. Yeah, yeah which was um, very, very lovingly done yeah. and, yep. and incredibly fun to read. Yeah, and maybe the persona music. Like, we don't know. We just know that, that uh, she was excited to see what would happen. Yeah. And so what we did to distribute these was we scrambled the name tags and everybody picked one. And then um, we had written a note from A. So put on your name tags. Patrick. Robin. Robin. Tina. Tina. Okay, put on your name tags. Yes. Each of you are getting a note. Okay, and we can read them now. Okay. I've gotten my note. It says, Dear Bradley, thanks for lending me your notes. You always study so hard. Signed, A. Bradley can only take notes about what's happened. Everyone has a quirk. Do not share this info. So we didn't want to spoil anything. We didn't want them to know there was a murderer, and we didn't want them to know who the name of the main character. We, we wanted to let them discover that yeah. uh, that narrative pleasure of figuring out the story as, as we had had ourselves. Yeah, so like, dear Robin, uh, I know you're new here, and you don't talk much. I hope we can be friends, A. Uh, and then under that, it would say something like, um, Robin is shy, uh, therefore Robin cannot speak. Do um, not share your quirk. Do not share your quirk. Yeah, so this is secret information. And on Tina's, there's an extra circled one that's like, Tina only wins if the room, the group doesn't finish in 50 minutes. Well, so maybe we can ask uh, Goldie like, so, how it went. So what happened? Well, <laughs> I was, like, who were you with? I yeah. was with um, Shung Lin, who was playing Tina. Okay. Laura, who was playing Bradley, the narrator. Jay was Robin, who was quiet. And I was Patrick. Had to have my hands in my shirt pockets um, for the entire game. And the thing, I think what happened was, like, when you came out of the out of the room the first time, you were so excited and we were really excited to help you out. But, but there were just so many, like, calamitous things that happened in our experience that sort of <laughs> didn't quite line up. For example, I could never read the diary right. because my hands were in my pockets. And so for the whole 50 minutes, I was sort of just still trying to solve puzzles and move through to find more information, more information, more information. Right, because Patrick wouldn't care about Amy's diary. He'd be like, I'm too cool to read a girl's diary. Sure, but... It, as it turns out, at the end of our 50 minutes, I walked out of that room thinking I'd murdered Amy. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there were some big problems. Right. right. Patrick might want one thing, but Goldie wants another thing. <laughs> yeah. And and so, I don't know, it was pretty fun. Um, Shun Lun as Tina, uh, so I, I was the one who found the knife in the final room. I reached into Tina's locker and sort of felt the ceiling, mm-hmm. and there it was. Even though Patrick's not supposed to touch. 
Yeah, but I was, I was touching everything through my pockets, you know. <laughs> so Patrick is like the weirdest aloof kid, like with a trench like coat where he's grabbing stuff. He, he's just, just like, a hypochondriac, doing not this, uh, you know, like scratching my nose when I needed to. <laughs> I did not take my hands out of my pockets. So I, was I was imagining frustrated. Patrick with like one leg up in the back of the room. Like, nah. hands in pockets, just watching. Uh. <laughs> well, as, as I sort of said to you, it was like, it was, a, it was an ambitious, an ambitious thing to do, and it was a terrible first pancake. But <laughs> that's, you know, you can, I reckon if you tried again, um, you could get something really interesting out of this. Hey, can, can we say what Cheng Wen did? So he yeah, really, he really actually performed and role played. Yeah. He, so, so say a little bit about he, that, maybe. He worked out fairly early on in the room that he could lock us into a different space. Oh, And boy. in any of the escape rooms that we've been through so far, as because we were such good teammates, nobody had ever thought, oh, yeah, I'll lock my teammates in there for fun, ha-ha. But um, Shang Lin worked out that maybe that would be really useful for him. <laughs> so I fi- anyway, I find the knife, and uh, Tina, Tina runs over and snatches it and piss bolts to the first room. <laughs> And we give chase, and I shout out, Tina! Which we could hear from yeah. the neighboring yeah. escape room. So wait, yeah, I think, I, I think this is important because, yeah, we were doing a silent room, and we kept hearing Goldie shout at Tina. Um, so the Captain Price no, Key... Dare you. The cap. We hear uh, Shung Lun in the background uh, playing his Tina in another room. Okay. And so I think one thing that I'd love to hear yes. more about is it's not just that Shung Lun was trying to slow down time by like locking yeah. people in or bungling a lock. He was actually role playing sure. in terms of his yeah. affect, his voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, Robin just asked me out. He confessed that he's always been interested in me since he moved into the school. I can't believe it. He did notice me from the beginning. So happy I could die. Now we're officially. I'm gonna vomit. Tina is super jealous. Yeah. Duh. But the rest of the people, uh, you weren't necessarily performing. It was, it was your a difficult role. mix because yeah. Shanglin was still sort of like the main voice of the room mm-hmm. because I I had almost no agency. Robin had very restricted agency. Right. Well, you could speak, but Robin could touch. But I couldn't communicate with the good guy. I could only communicate with the bad guy. Robin is hard at work on a padlock that's just opened. Wait! Somehow. How do you... <laughs> Where did the numbers what come from? We don't know, but now the backpack is open. Robin, I'm telling you that. Robin was indicating their, their vast intelligence by tapping their head. So what happened was, Shunglin took the knife, or Tina took the knife. I, I wrestled the knife with my hands in my pockets off of Tina. And then Tina was like, I'll give you the key. That Tina had the last key or something. I'll give you the key if you admit to what you did. And I'm standing there staring, like, with real frustration at Shang Lin's, and I'm just like, I don't know what I did. I haven't read the diary. Like, So we we did grab the key and get out of there, um, but she was demanding, very dramatically demanding an apology, uh, which Goldie was providing all in character. Well, what's, what's interesting, the diary implies... That, Tina that Patrick that might have Patrick done it, or oh, Tina. So you, so, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the th- this is why it was a broken, a broken um, pancake. Is that I just said, "Fine, I did it," and Tina was like, "Great, let's go." <laughs> so off we went. So uh, in that story, Patrick went to jail. 
Yeah, took the fall. <laughs> well, but I think I think I think Shanglin realized it was trivially e- trivially easy to make you lose because he could just lock yeah. a room. So instead, he kind of made his own funny ending to yeah. resolve yeah. the yeah. resolve think, his yeah, and still win in an unfortunate position. And I I do agree with everything that you said in the first half of this interlude. Is that like well, there's so much opportunity here to make something that's a little bit deeper than a, than just your standard escape room by assigning characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that. Going ahead, you'll or we'll continue to push it. Yeah, I think this is worth kind of going over for a second, and that's that we did have an escape room franchise that assigned roles, mechanical roles, but those role and that's the breakout franchise where you could be the light bearer, the one with the torch, or the lock master, the one who could like open a specific puzzle. But those roles were generic roles across all the story worlds. They weren't like married to a mechanic. And one thing that I think is interesting about this format and was our goal with this format was to provide, even to new players, a mechanic that they could follow very easily, like and not touching or not speaking. And, and you know, I'm somebody who, you know, LARPing, role-play... Performing. Perfor- right. Yeah, performance. This isn't kind of my style of play that I'm immediately attracted to, but I'm interested in those types of kind of gameplay mechanisms where you are kind of inhabiting a character, but not one where, like, I necessarily have to be, like, doing twirls and performing a valley girl, but that there's something mechanically about what I'm doing where I'm, like, sticking my hands in my pockets or I'm not speaking, where it still involves playing a character without the need to kind of, like, Mm. act, right? Mm -hmm. Right, this is the key. This is what I was getting at, is that can you provide mechanical rules yeah. That would enable people to role play despite themselves, like with, and and to make it more comfortable. It, in dep- it depends. It depends on what you mean by role play. Yeah. So uh, the way I phrased it was just even without our silly constraints on top of it, just having the name tags when the three of us went into the room was a kind of directing of yeah. attention. Totally. So so yeah. just yeah. having the name tag, even though I was never pretending to be Tina, I was never I never th- mistook myself as Tina, or I was I was not voicing her or something I was immediately more interested in the book and the room because my attention had been directed as such so maybe it was a bad pancake but it still tasted really good wait Is that and I, well I agree I agree though. and and I think uh, and I think that that's a wrap for classroom murder I would say I would just it's add a stack. I would, it's a stack, jeez. Uh, I, I would add more generally. Flapjacks. We've, we've talked about this a bit, but that just that mundanity, relatability of, cool. uh, of the theme uh, was, was great, and we'd love to see more of that and, mm. and more escape rooms. Yeah. The ordinary everyday becomes the most effective vehicle for um, the, the kind of tropes of escape rooms yeah. because it's somehow puts you in a mindset where you're like you have you become more curious about what seems out of place yeah since it's even more familiar yeah and and i would say for me because i'm a teacher now teaching in a north american context where the you know it's become a lived reality for us uh like school violence and school shootings like like it's it's not just something that we're seeing in the news but it's like shaping the the kind of everyday life that 
and, and our, our teaching on, our on relationships kind of a daily to students basis and our or relationships our attitudes to students. towards the classroom. Yeah, I think that this was also one of the reasons that we found this particular escape room to be so provocative and also something that I don't think that you would see, at least right now in this particular yeah, moment in yeah. North America. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things about the Persona franchise. I realize we need to get to the end of this interlude, but the, the whole thing about the Persona franchise is that you're an after-school club that's doing devil worshiping. Like that's what that series is about. You're doing this witchcraft as your club, getting into a kind of mischief that is taboo. Um. So it was a bad pancake, but it still tasted good. And I think we all had a good time. <laughs> Even those of you who were forced to put your hands in your pockets. Mm-hmm. More high school romance. Yeah, I think that's right. More dating sims. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's a wrap. Let's get back to the group to hear about the rest of our experiences trying to escape the forgotten underpass without being able to see the room, without touching anything, and without speaking. Yeah, so, so maybe this brings us back to this this moment of starting to add our own constraints. So we finished this room, Classroom Murder, that I've just played terribly in, but coincidentally, I was Tina. Like, I was the the murderer. And so we were, we were laughing at the end of this escape room. Oh, that's so funny that you were playing this escape room so badly. It was, like, matched narratively that you might be sabotaging the rest of the team. Tina's trembling hands, like, can't fit the key <laughs> yeah, in the final exactly. door. Doug's literally jamming the key in backwards into the final door. <laughs> Like, buying Tina an extra just, minute would save Tina, Tina right? is so over it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it's funny, the other day we mentioned, as for silly escape room ideas, what if there was an escape room with a traitor? And so I think we started talking about, wait, hold on, what if classroom, mur- like, why is Tina with the rest of the friends? Why doesn't she have the opportunity to, like, murder the rest of her friends or, or mess up the, the investigation? So that we, we said, well, hold on, two of our other groups uh, are going to get to play this game, uh, what if we spend some time actually trying to force these additional constraints? That linked back to another discussion, which is we were hypothesizing at the beginning of this trip, what do we do if we start getting bored of escape rooms? Well, maybe we start adding in our own constraints. So we, uh, we as a group, after the first room, started theorizing, well, what, what other constraints should we give to each other as we now play uh, the rooms that we've just played? Yeah, and so likewise, other teams started formulating constraints as well. And I think the main ones were a no-talking constraint for the whole group, which was really interesting. With With the exception of the note-taker, who ended up playing a very interesting role uh, because of that. So that's kind of like one thing I think we should get to. A second one is uh, no-touching for the whole group, except for one member who is blindfolded. (laughs) <laughs> that was fascinating. That's, and that was you, me. Yeah, that was me. That's yeah. wild. And then the, <laughs> the final one is this set of quirks or roles that incorporates some of these ideas and a trigger mechanic. I just have to say, when you three came out of that, that room, I was seriously worried because of the looks on your faces. 
the you no talking. Too excited. The gleefulness. Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When you came uh, on a classroom, rubbing our hands yes. and uh, <laughs> starting to get to work right well, away. I was like, what are we getting into now? Well, but also, can I just? I think at least for Patrick and I playing, that that might be the most straight up fun mm. that I've had. This trip it was just so refreshing. The the narrative and the theme and this relatable setting. Uh, uh, anyway, so I think. Part of this came from the energy of just being so excited about this escape room that was maybe fueling some of the additional mm -hmm. creativity. And this, I think, was some of the most enjoyable note taking that I've done too, because it was just absurd. Because none of you were doing anything because <laughs> you were completely incapable of solving the puzzle. Um, I, I want to shift the conversation to the escape room that Li Ying and a couple of us were were doing. I think it was Alex. Alex. Yeah, it was Alex, the three of us, yeah. uh, and our constraint was. Uh, Alex and I couldn't touch anything. We could speak, but we couldn't touch anything. And Li Ying was blindfolded. And I was uh, the only one who could touch anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> including the logs, including all the puzzles. So yeah, Jen, for context, this was the the forgotten the, underpass, the third room. Yes, you played, and another group. Yes, had, as we were making constraints. And I, I think it's crucial to remember that uh, Li Ying has played like her first escape room and is now playing <laughs> yeah. one of the <laughs> hardest constraints that I think you can come up with. In, in one of the hardest escape rooms we've yeah, ever Yeah, and one which required quite a... Yes. Tell us about it. I was joking about it to chat. I was like, so my first escape room, I got blindfolded and handcuffed, and now I'm volunteering to be blindfolded and touching things. Mm -hmm. So... For the room, right, Chad had to basically guide me everywhere. He was like, here's the door, feel the door. And I was like, okay, there's the door there. And Alex was like telling me what the room looks like. There's this toolbox here. And we're like, okay, that's there. And uh, one of the puzzles, oh, uh, the door had a stick, right? Mm -hmm. And I had, to get, yeah, I had to get the stick out. And I was the only one who could pull it out. I was like, wait, it's locked. And there's another lock. There are two locks. <laughs> <laughs> And how did you manage to find the key to the... It was in the toolbox, uh, which no, had... Wait. It was by the door, oh, yeah. I believe. So there was um, a key which yeah. was just hanging on oh, the door. Yes. Yes. But we, we had already had the experience of like impossibly small object to find yeah. um, in our first room, which is the mission room, where we were looking desperately for an Allen key, and it turns out it was in our room the whole time. But yeah, that was something that was slightly annoying because it's like... Why would you just put like why would you put a magnet Allen key on a bench? Yeah, like, yeah. under it was a the bench. Same color as the bench. Yeah, so it was invisible. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I started feeling around as soon as I sat down. Mm. As soon as we sat down, mm. uh, I started feeling around under the mm. thing. So I found that. Yeah. Really quickly. That stick puzzle, we had to do it silently, which was also hilarious in a different way. But how did you do it um, when it got to actually mm -hmm. like it was a long yeah. long stick, yeah. right? Uh, so. There's a door, and there's a hole in the door, and the keys to unlocking the door were hung up on the left side and of the wall. And there were eight sets of keys. Six, 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 six sets of keys. And like six keys yeah. on each yeah. set. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the puzzle was basically you had to tie a magnet onto the long stick. Oh, is that how you did no. it? Yeah, that's how, that's how we no, did it. No, that's how for, we, for context, how big was the magnet? Like a teeny tiny, tiny, tiny. Wait, we all accomplished this in totally different ways. You were the only ways. people to actually solve this puzzle. Really? really? 
<laughs> How did you the, do the it? We knocked over all the keys. Yeah. Really? And yeah. scraped them. Really? Wow. The Under the, uh, the Wait, sorry. We need Everyone's a, excited. It was Laura, like, the, the magnet was like the size of a pinky fingernail. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So Leeing, the whole time being blindfolded, tied the magnet to the stick and pushed it through to the the set of keys. Um, and yeah, we eventually had to like pull them slowly and slowly in. We just wanted to describe how each of the individual groups did it because we accomplished it in totally different ways. Mm. For ours, it's a, a stick with a pointy end. Mm. So we used it to knock the keys onto the stool underneath. Then we pushed the stool to the opposite wall where we had better leverage and hooked Whoa. it and dragged ah. the stool over to us. Okay. Wow. Yeah, we... we <laughs> So, well, we didn't talk to each other. Patrick, right. Patrick had worked out which particular set of keys we and wanted. So what was my job like? during that puzzle was to stand belligerently, <laughs> stomping my foot and pointing wow, at guys. the guard that we need, while <laughs> everybody else knocked every single. Yeah. Key out of the wall. Hang on, we had some. We had some. We had some uh, method. So <laughs> Patrick gesticulating wildly, shaking his head, can't believe what's happening. Uh, dissension amongst the ranks. Keys just drop to the ground. Uh, everything's falling apart. Goalie now trying to get the stool. I like this. Patrick furiously pointing to the uh, list of dates. No one looking at Patrick at all. Another set of keys. Patrick stomping his foot, uh, vigorously asking everyone to look. Not having voice is very difficult. I would I would knock knock one set of keys off, and then use it like a spear, like a fisherman with a spear pole, just like pin it to the ground and yeah. then rotate it to drag it, or like flick it with a, like a broom towards the bottom of the door, which you could kind of manipulate to get your hand into. And then I would point to which set of keys that was. And Patrick is standing there, just like I hope this. You know. Patrick's face right now shows traces yeah, of exasperation. <laughs> I think Doug and I were just, Doug was narrating and I was just pointing at this thing during the- Patrick has, uh, has not only hit the wall, Patrick, Patrick's body has exploded against the wall. Just exasperation, eye rolls, shrugs. Did you get, mm-hmm. you, you got it. Was it number five? It was. So it was not Butterfingers Wilson who who messed up the keys this time. I can't believe he did it without. It was hard enough without voice, without vision. Mm. Um, it was really funny because we actually knew which guard we had to get, but I only realized that there were actually names next to each thing after we'd already knocked it's off awful. four of the keys. Because yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not wearing my glasses. I forgot to bring my glasses on this trip. So it was just a bunch of blurs there. And I was like, oh, there's just six keys. We just have to guess which one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it hit me like, oh, shit. Now there's four sets of keys on the floor, and we don't know <laughs> which one it is. We were all playing silently, and Doug was narrating. Uh, and unfortunately, one of the sets of keys that I knocked off got knocked out of reach for mm. me to drag it. And I, and I turned to Doug and said, oh, I didn't say anything. I just turned to Doug and he said, I'm not playing, I'm not playing. <laughs> and eventually I think what happened is you saw what had happened and we utilised your long arms, Wilson. Well, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I think power. it's a revelation that the team with the player who's blindfolded did the puzzle correctly. Yeah. Can you talk like, yeah, a little bit amazing. more yeah. about amazing. that? Yeah, can you talk about like the experience of actually doing that puzzle um, 
Or do you want to talk about how we got to? Yeah. yeah. So I was the, we opened the two box. How do we even? We found a key. No, 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 no. It was the date from it was the diary. Yeah, yeah. It was the right, arrival right. date. Yes, that's and right. And to do that, I was the one who was doing the lock. <laughs> yeah, right? so how and do you do the lock? So I could feel there were four rows, and Chad would be like, okay, you're a nine. You have to turn to one, so oh. turn left. And be like, and I had to feel it click. Mm-hmm. And Chad would be like, ah, it's not quite there. And I'd be like, twist a little bit. Okay, it's there. <laughs> and that's how we opened the two box, uh-huh. and I put my hands in there. It was like, ropes and I'm like what this is so weird <laughs> and I had ropes and there was a magnet and then there was a stick I was like ah tie the magnet onto the that stick that was your idea yeah, yeah. Nice. touching yeah. like you would increase the chance of wait and you found the magnet the magnet. and you know why mm. I think that happened is because there were people whose job it was just to look mm. Right. They were describing it everything to me mm. while it was so happening. So would have been really looking and, and seen it. And they were forced to touch everything. Whereas yeah. we would look at it touching. and go, yeah, mm. oh, Maybe this is a thing. Because yeah. mm. to be clear, the magnet was on the top of a Lydia. green steel box, and it looked weird for a magnet because it had a plastic bit uh, yeah. super glued on the yeah. back of it. That's yeah. why I thought we could tie it onto it, because there was a thing. Like mm. a kind of nub, and, yeah. And the rope had like a loop. That you could tighten when you yes. pulled it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We are learning so much. Yep. <laughs> and then yeah. on the other end, there was another loop. Yeah. So we looped it through the stick. Yes, there were two loops. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. There was no loop. <laughs> Wait, there. hang on. Ours had no loop. Uh, yeah, we didn't have a loop. <laughs> and the magnet broke. Yes, ours. The hook broke. <laughs> oh, are those loops from when we made like the weird dangly thing? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Okay, so this oh, is jumping. Oh my gosh, oh, this is jumping ahead to the next puzzle. But the silent group, once you get these keys and test them all, or you find the six guards key and just use it, door? you get to the next room, and uh, there's a photo uh, of the back of the next door. Yes, and the photo shows that there's a key. Yeah, whether or not it's uh, like magnetized on or what, you're not sure. We, I think, assumed. Well, we were silent, so I don't know what we were assuming, but. We originally thought that the key was just like dangling on a hook or something. So we built a contraption that was like one string down to a set of keys tied on it and another string down to a set of keys tied out with a length in between. And we were like trying to loop the key from behind with a U (laughs) because we hadn't found the magnet. It's like a nicely weighted, yeah, it was a cool device. Patrick has two two keys on a little, little like a, how would I call this almost? Two weights so that there's a little uh, stretch of rope between the two keys. It's almost like a little two-dimensional basket. Uh, like Goldie's now put this uh, kind of weighted rope loop through the door. Uh, so she's like holding one end of each rope as if a handle. Now Patrick is gesticulating. Patrick wants to operate the rope. Patrick's now trying to tie the two ropes together. We needed more length to use his loop devi- weighted loop device. <laughs> um, okay, L- luckily Patrick's pretty good with knots. Uh, I am not, I'm not sure how I'd be able to do this puzzle. Uh, no pun intended, sorry. Uh, Patrick, Dikembe Matumbo fingers coming out again. What? Looping the keys through a loop. This narration is not helping anybody. Oh my 
think I think Stephanie's hit the wall as well. Cracking up. Can I just say I, I'm actually enjoying this. I I think you three aren't. Uh, but but spectating this is quite interesting. Hello. Yeah, hi. Hi, Dream. Good. They're working uh, working on a device to kind of fish out the key from okay. the other side. How are you going to fish it out? Uh, Patrick's oh. concocting an interesting loop, Will a magnet weighted help? loop. Yeah? Will a magnet help? Will a magnet help? Thank yeah. you for the hint. We were trying to fish for it. We stuck the magnet onto a padlock, which we tied to the string. Oh. And we were like dangling it, trying to catch it. Because the magnet, the hook was broken on the magnet. Yeah. We had to figure yeah. out something. Well, I, I picked up the magnet and said, okay, do you really trust me? Then I just dropped, dropped it. <laughs> I tried to use the magnet on the other side of the door to like lift it up along the door. Mm. But it was too oh. mm. Just a couple more sort of things about this moment is that um, I was the one that was holding the light mm. with all of this like <laughs> messing with the rope. <laughs> and basically Goldie and Patrick were in a kind of gestural squabble. Yeah, with each other <laughs> yeah. in like, the dark. No, I can tie it better. Well, no, I don't know I if anybody else. We couldn't talk, so my way of saying I could tie it better was like crossing my arms and stomping my foot and pointing. Oh, yeah. Goldie, <laughs> it, this whole time I'm narrating. Yeah. Oh, yep, Goldie's getting passive aggressive again. <laughs> Patrick's hungry to get his fingers on this rope to tie it. Goldie's trying it instead to Kembe Matumbo finger again from Patrick. Goldie does not want to give up the magnet. Some uh, intra-team passive aggression here. <laughs> Stephanie is now taking away the flashlight to force the rest of the team into the light. Three-way, Goldie's refusing to come. All three passively, aggressively uh, refusing to follow each other. And so I, I think I like maybe touched your shoulders and pointed to about five feet away where there was a bright light that we could stand yeah. under in order to do this incredibly we technical so rope tying. And you both were like, no, yeah, you like refused <laughs> to bite. It was like sunk cost fallacy. Like wow. I'm not moving five feet. So eventually so, Steph just pissed off with the light. <laughs> I was the one holding the only flashlight. So Goldie and I were then in the dark continuing. <laughs> Silently, and we look back yeah. and see Steph in just like standing there with the flashlight in, in the, the light, light. And then waiting <laughs> for people to yeah. eventually so just turn yeah. back, try to tie this bloody thing. And you did it. Um, but we still, so, and eventually we start like having to do all that stick stuff, and then Doug has to intervene. And this was another moment of uh, kind of no. cross cultural miscommunication. Where Goldie... Yeah. <laughs> well, Doug, I, I turned to Doug to try to say, hey, mate, like, the keys are too far for any of us to reach. You've got really long arms. Can you help? And he said no. And then I tried to sort of explain it again. With body language. With body language. Mm -hmm. And, you know, or eventually you looked and you saw the situation. Yeah. So in you went. You got the keys. <laughs> and I turned around and did the hand signal that I thought was for thank you. Which is by putting my finger, my fingertips under my chin and then pushing my hand towards Doug. And I had a very sincere, you know, look on my face to say thank you. The, the, set, the, the key might be too far. Okay, sounds like I'm going to have to come in with long arms, long arms Wilson, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> he's cracking up. Um, don't push me. I'm not even supposed to be here today. 
You had to use my long arm to... Alright, fuck this. Get the test. Why fuck me? I just got a... Fuck you gesture from Goldie. Oh, there was a thank you? Hold on. No, no, no. Putting your hand on your chin means fuck you. <laughs> I got you the keys. You needed my long arms to get... He just goes, what? <laughs> fuck you? What? <laughs> <laughs> I just did it again. <laughs> with, with, with a sincere grin on her face, then I misinterpreted it as this, like, snarky grin as she's oh saying, fuck you. <laughs> and so I'm narrating this whole time, like, why is she telling me that? <laughs> How did the group with the blindfold do the magnet puzzle on that oh, door? Okay. So I put my hands through the hole with the stick, and Chad was like, okay, to your left, to your left, up, up, a little bit. And I knew the keys were hanging, so I didn't want to slide, because mm. I felt like then it would, like, uh, throw everything off. So I had to, like, lift it up, put it back in, lift it up, put it back And I could feel the magnet click on one of the keys. I think the first one, did yeah. we? Yeah. Yeah. It clicked, and it would release again because the magnum wasn't really strong because it's tiny yeah. <laughs> yeah so wait for is this for the stick puzzle stuff yeah yeah, yeah, yeah how'd yeah. you do the rope puzzle though which rope we we no, they we used the rope did you we use the stick again no 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 no. we kind of used the the thin rope string with the with that the magnet was on but we kind we, of fished it down mm-hmm. and then, and then yeah we felt the click and then we pulled it up oh i see yeah. oh sorry um so i was note taking for the forgotten underpass where liang was blindfolded and it was actually really uneventful because there was such a long period of Time. just Chad yeah. being like, oh, move to the left, move to the left. <laughs> and it, it was like maybe like 20 minutes of just silence where I was just like, oh, I'm just listening to yeah. Chad instruct. But what was really fascinating about that is because we had a blindfolded person, we were automatically like narrating things that we were seeing right like i wasn't the note taker but i was describing things for Li ying and so in a way that was like being conveyed to um the the voice recorder it was fascinating so the this is the other thing that's really exciting to me is that a constraint can teach people to be better players and better teammates when otherwise they'd be quarterbacking Mm. right so uh for somebody who's outspoken, having a silent constraint could be really fun and also teach them a lesson about how to work with their group. Just as um, the person who was stamping his foot. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I definitely um, didn't do as thorough a job of note-taking on this one just because we were stuck at points for a really long time and we were explaining what was in the room a lot anyway. Um, this was also an incredibly hard room. None of us finished it. Mm. Yeah. So... Mm. I I had to like step in and start helping looking for clues and mm. I was just like last five minutes I was thinking like there's no way we're gonna figure any of this out in the last five yeah. minutes. Well, I'm just last, gonna sit here. That last yeah. Viking clue in the book. Yeah. Let's yeah. <laughs> clarify that it was hard and not necessarily because it was like too clever for us. Mm. Um, there were things that linked together mm. without logically connecting. Yeah. Once we got to that room, we eventually gave up with the blindfold. Um, yeah. So when I was in there with blindfolds, they were describing things to me. So I was like, there's this um, candle with the number two on it, a shovel with the number nine. I was like, what the? <laughs> what do you mean? What's Wait, going on? So I'm really curious about like the um, Wizard of Oz moment where you reveal, oh. you take your mask off. <laughs> I had no idea. So 
the spaces felt really small to me because I felt like everyone was like moving me forward, moving me backward, but everything was very long. Mm -hmm. I think because I didn't have this perspective of like depth and view. So I was literally like, oh, it feels so cramped. It feels so cramped. Everything feels so small. I didn't know where I was supposed to move. I didn't know where I was supposed to be able to walk. So when I opened my eyes for the first time, I was like, whoa, everything's pretty big. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have an accurate mental map or picture? Of where things were around. No, no. <laughs> like, the keys that were hanging, I was like, what do you mean they're hanging on the wall? <laughs> the wall. Like, through a string? Through, yeah. through something? Yeah. But yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. We'd recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, we've shared some of our experiences, but I, I kind of want to talk about what it means to to play with constraints more generally, more broadly, and what that means in a, uh, an escape room context, but maybe beyond that as well. And, and also, it, the other conversation I want to have is like, what was the, the escape room owner's response to us self-constrained? Because I feel like that's such a weird and uh, unconventional thing to do. Like, why would you uh, intentionally and voluntarily self-constrain while the clock is still ticking? Um, maybe we can talk a bit about that. So I feel like our constraints were very mechanical Mm. uh, for the most part. And I think of it in the tension of Ludus and Paideia, this idea that um, there are really strict rules that you could follow with structure, or there's like the loose concept of play. um, And navigating those tensions uh, allows for a lot of different expressions um, of the same object. And we kind of went, okay, here are the rules that we're going to abide with. But the dynamics that were produced out of that changed the game entirely, right? But it happens with other players, no doubt, probably less rule-based, right? Like people will naturally role-play perhaps or mm. become different people. So they're also pulling at the edges of these things, metagaming. Yeah, or even like um, having like a team leader that you decide on before going in is, is a self-constrained rule. You're deciding mm. that to do it before you even enter. And so many people do that, I think. Well, can I say maybe it's worth... Uh, hearing what Stephanie and Patrick have to say about this, uh, who, the, no, like literally wrote a book about Megan. <laughs> right? Yeah, the so big what, what plug. Is Finally, good. Uh, <laughs> but did, did that immediately connect to you in, in those kinds of ways? <laughs> I feel like every time of the our book is mentioned, there needs to be some sort of like. Like sound, like the sad like trombone. A, a yeah. <laughs> what? No. Dollar bill. Cashier. Ching ching. Or an eagle crow. I don't know if I want to talk about the 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 like book specifically. I'll do it. I'll do it. So <laughs> I'll just say. Uh, <laughs> I've been waiting for this. Yeah. So Stephanie and I wrote a book. We we worked on it for a really long time, like a decade. It's and the secret. What we were really, <laughs> what we're really interested in is the things that people do with games, and we express that through the concept of the metagame. So the metagame is the thing. Sometimes people use it as a word for strategy. Sometimes people use that word as the current fashion or a trend in a game. Sometimes people use that word for like games about other games that are like referential. But different communities use that word in a lot of different ways. But what we did is kind of look at all of those together. And what came out from that is that so many things happen in, on, around, and through games. This is like the tagline of the book, right? And specifically, it 
puts an emphasis on what we do with games rather than the game object itself. It puts a lot of responsibility and a lot of agency in the hands of players to become designers and use a game as a tool or a toy or an instrument to make music or to have some kind of experience or to build something between themselves. Sort of like a bucket can become, you know... a a castle builder. You yeah, you can wear it as a hat or you can hold yeah. water in it, right? So the bucket has all these capacities outside of its bucketness that uh, if we attend it to, you could do all these different things with the bucket. That's what makes it like a valuable tool to have around. Um, so we have a bunch of escape room designers in the room. How do the designers in the room feel about players uh, deviating f- away from the way the, 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 the escape room was designed to be played and kind of played their own way with, or with their own rules. I love it when that happens. Um, from my professional work, uh, I worked in advertising for a long time doing promotions for stop motion animation films. And like to me, as a community manager, the highest compliment was people making fan art mm-hmm. or getting a tattoo of your own art. And it's like, if they care enough about that to engage deeply with it, to make it their own, and then to produce something new and unique that wouldn't have existed without that union, I think is like the most amazing thing possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, we we didn't hide the fact that oh. we were adding these constraints to um, to our play, to the to the attendants that were working there. And they got really, really excited mm-hmm. about what we were doing and, and kind of like wanted to record the sessions and, and see what would happen. So I think, uh, you know, I don't think we were doing this to add extra layers of challenge or complexity because like, oh, we've hit the wall. We're like yeah. so good at escape rooms that we need to like, yeah. Yeah. we need to like make it even harder. Or we're so had, bored. Or we're so yeah. bored. Right. It, it wasn't had, that. It had nothing yeah. to do with that, but it had to do with, you know, here is this thing with all this potential and how can we in each of our sessions experience the game from all these different angles. And I think even in the conversations that we've been having today, right, like about the magnet, for example, or about the um, how we use the stick, the fact that each of us played that game with like from a slightly different angle produced a completely different um, experience, like very, very historically specific um, experience of play in that escape room with this group at that particular moment in time. And that was beautiful. From a design perspective, I'm always excited to create worlds that are kind of like toy boxes, um, platforms for play and for people to connect their own meaning rather than deliver specific puzzles that require you to change your thinking to that of the designer. Um, that There's a pleasure in that, and I think it's always dialogic as well, but it's so much more rewarding seeing players come up with their own internal logic and then have that verified even if it's not what you thought of it's more of like a yeah it's like a stretching and a squashing and it make, it's like testing the malleableness of the puzzle rather than trying to smash it or destroy it i think that's like what i'm interested in designing for as well i don't mm. make ex- escape rooms but i think it's really the exciting part there's one particular puzzle i'm thinking of in Earthrise one where there's a fingerprint scanner and there's a proper way to get through the fingerprint scanner but one team turned a glove inside out to use it, and we just think, oh, well, that's logical, and then remotely <laughs> unlocked it. <laughs> yeah. The stuff, the stuff that makes space for that is really interesting because, like in in competitive puzzle design or competitive puzzle solving, as well as like cryptology stuff, um, knowing the mind of the puzzle designer and sort of mastering mm-hmm. that, finding the constraint of it, and like 
understanding and sort of tricking away from it is how puzzles are solved. Um, when we do competitive stuff, we re- we research puzzles by the other people to know how they set them, the type of flavor text they're going to use, the type of structures they're drawn to, um, because it becomes essential. Uh, so like the fact that there are people who are designing in spaces away from that deliberately is very exciting. Mm, cool. What do you think about it, Lee? Oh, um, I really liked uh, Classroom because it felt like the puzzles were designed for the space. Mm-hmm. And that was how we, with me, how I designed UI for our games in Malacra. Like the puzzles were part of the phone and the phone was helping to tell the narrative of the puzzles in the games. And I really liked that with Classrooms instead of the other two escape rooms where it felt like the puzzles were there for the sake of being there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, what I feel like I'm seeing the thread is that even from uh, the designer's or uh, escape room owner's perspective, there's like this big thirst for this level of engagement. Um, mm. And I feel like a lot of, perhaps a lot of the, um, you know, we as designers uh, perhaps, uh, you know, engage in this way uh, much easier, but it would like, there's nothing really stopping your regular uh, escape room player from engaging at this level, like, is that something you think uh, would uh, we want to see more of? So many hands in the sky. Yeah. Um, this does. Yeah, as you say, there's nothing stopping you, but there's also nothing really helping Encouraging you, condoning you. Right. And like to say that escape rooms are causing the street crate revolution would be like, you know, Minecraft is a shit crayon mm. kind of metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> this is an Ian Bogost um, essay that I'm referencing. Doug wants to. Doug wants to talk. Doug wants shit to, crayon. No, sorry, think. that was actually a reference to something else. Um, <laughs> well, I guess uh, no. <laughs> what I was going to say uh, was, I wonder if we're ascribing too much to the object itself. So, uh, like in video game culture, kind of achievements and metagaming and putting your own constraints is is super common. So I think there's also like a cultural thing going on that that's a more familiar pattern that we see a friend metagame or add silly constraints to a video game. So. You know, I, I, I wonder, mm-hmm. sure, we can make escape rooms that themselves help facilitate that, but maybe this is, and maybe this is also the work of yeah. the podcast, like inspiring other escape room players to make that more of a culture of playing escape mm-hmm. room. Thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that fascinates me about video games is that, you know, we, we don't know what video games can do, and I'm constantly being surprised by what players do with it. Mm-hmm. And I think we can say the same thing for escape rooms, right? Like, as we sort of come to the end, or I come to the end of this experience of <laughs> oversaturating myself with escape rooms, I find myself agnostic to making the kind of judgment call of whether this is a good escape room or a bad escape room, but I'm only interested in kind of exploring the various potentials yeah. that are emerging through all the different ways we're choosing to, as a group, collectively play it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're in a very unique situation here because not many people are doing what we're doing, right? <laughs> Not many people are hitting this many games and having the opportunity to even add these constraints because mm. why would you, when you're going into an experience the first time, no knowledge of what it's going to be like, then you add these constraints, maybe you break your entire experience, mm. right? So mm. we are doing something that only we can do now because we're playing so many of them, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's we're, true. We're at the point where we're stretching it as far as, like, mm. to breaking point, maybe, yeah. hopefully. Mm. But 
imagining the forum reviews of an escape room, right? It, it's not yes. impossible to imagine a culture of yeah. this. It's like, we really like this one, but if you're up to the challenge, we think this would be hilarious to yeah, play with totally. no talking. And one of us was playing for the second time, mm -hmm. right? When you started playing slightly differently. Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think it's actually not a stretch um, to have a tier of um, these experiences that is like an expert tier or something. I don't know how you'd name it. Uh, I, we're not, the, but that's the, the thing. We were really like, we were in the like, we're playing this terribly, so we just yeah. changed it up. Sure, yeah. but you could have this array of roles that would actually enable people to role play in these spaces. And I think that mechanical constraints are a way to enable role playing. I think you could also have costumes, right? You could also have uh, small narrative briefings. But these things would actually change the way that a game is played without ruining um, the puzzles um, or being too difficult for people who hadn't played 33 escape rooms in one week, right? Um, in, in ours that we're currently developing, we're planning to have different modes that are ways of engaging. A story mode, for example, perhaps an expert mode where there's extra things layered in. Mm. But this whole experience has been extremely inspirational toward mm. making sure those are creating that space for flexibility in the experience. And then in a practical sense as an owner, perhaps it's inviting people to return to our space when normally these are like a one-off experience. So people can engage with it the first time in a standard way, and then they can come back and deepen and personalize their experience. That would be fantastic. Uh, I guess we'll uh, wrap, up, wrap, wrap it up there. Um, I want to thank Lee Ying for joining us for yeah. the Escape Room Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> um, uh, I want to thank everyone in the room. Uh, this has been every uh, every game in this city. Uh, you can find our we'll website on every uh, every game in this dot city, <laughs> and on Twitter every escape room KL. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, thank you. Every Game in This City is a podcast on the Idle Thumbs Network. We recorded Season 1 in a hot bedroom in Petaling Jaya during the summer of 2018. Our theme music is a cover of Seiko 4 by Yasuaki Shimizu, a piece he originally composed for a wristwatch commercial in the 1980s. You can find us on the web at everygameinthis.city as well as most social media networks and podcasting platforms. In two weeks, our next episode will be moderated by Li Shanglun and Patrick Lemieux, who planned a spooky surprise for the group. And every game in this city-themed escape room designed to be played within the podcast itself. Sounded like someone came in. Yeah, the door just totally opened and closed. I have to not forget, I have to not forget. It's Tina! <laughs> <laughs> it's uncle. Hi. Is it your uncle? I thought maybe uncle. Yeah. Uncle, is he? Chandler's talking. Is he? He might have just shouted hello. Sorry, I've either locked someone you out or locked someone in. <laughs> oh. I locked someone in where? Well, I just locked the door, so maybe they're I think maybe it's it, Is the... Uh, are the um, sliding doors they closed? Open? So how's the air coming And none of the other doors in the house were open or shut? Creepy ghosts. <laughs>
Could it have been just like a pressure door? Yeah. Like mm. went into Doug's room or something? I put the door stopper in it. You put the door. Okay, well, let's continue yeah. before we do the whole noises. Amy's revenge. Amy's, Amy's revenge. Goes Amy. to me. Yeah. All right, let's continue. <clears throat> 